This is Power Players with Dan Clark. This is a podcast interview with former F-15 combat fighter pilot, Air Force Thunderbird and White House liaison, Nicole Malakowski. Welcome to Power Players with Dan Clark, former athlete, Hall of Fame speaker, New York Times bestselling author, and high-performance coach, where each week I bring you an inspiring message from an extraordinary human being who will share their secrets on how you can tap into your personal power to become everything you were born to be. Thanks so much for spending some time with me today. In this episode, my dear friend Nicole Malakowski, who is an F-15 driver flying dangerous missions over Iraq, who became the first female Thunderbird pilot, leading to a career as a White House liaison, which ended in a serious health challenge, shares her life and climbed to the top of her profession, giving us an inside glimpse of how a woman succeeded in a man's world and what she is now doing as a motivational speaker. Welcome to my program. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Dan. And I appreciate the uh, rather thorough and truly gracious introduction. Thank you, sir. (laughs) So, so amazing. So ladies and gentlemen, visualize this, this fireball, this, this woman who has excelled in a so-called man's world because she took pride in being everything she was born to be and made every one of her assignments genderless and rose to the occasion in an extraordinary way. So that brings up the very first P of a power player, Nicole. When and how did you first identify your passion to become not just a fighter pilot in everything you've ever done, you've exceeded expectations and risen above the norm. When did you first realize that you were that kind of a human being who wanted to push yourself to your ultimate capacity and potential as a human being? I think I'm pretty lucky in uh, in that respect. It was something I kind of felt inside of me from a very, you know, very young age. And I realized at a young age too, that passion is, something that you feel right inside of you. And I remember the exact moment that I decided, look, I'm going to become a fighter pilot someday. Um, And it was back when I was about five years old. This is like circa 1979. Um, Women had just started again, going to pilot training. Um, It was actually against the law at that time for women to be fighter pilots. But, you know, my little five-year-old brain didn't care. Um, I had grown up a middle-class American family, very lucky because I had a roof over my head and I had food on the table and I had a a stable family life. Um, And so that was an opportunity that was afforded me at a young age to have that foundation. And I grew up in this family that did have a military heritage. So I remember being a kid and we would go to like the Veterans Day parades and go to the different events where the military um, was being supported or the flag was flying, and I would feel something. Um, I would look at people in uniform marching together, this idea of teamwork or being a part of something bigger than yourself. I could see it, and I could feel it there, and I knew from a young age that serving your country was considered noble and honorable. So you combine that with the day my family went out to an air show. 
It was in Central California. I'm five years old. This aircraft comes screaming by. It's called the F-4 Phantom. It was the workhorse of the Vietnam War. And, like, I just started shaking uncontrollably with excitement. You know how you see little kids get so happy they just can't even control, like, their body? I covered my ears because the jet was loud. And I remember smelling the jet fuel, and I could feel the power of the engine, like, rumbling in, the, in my chest. And it was like this feast for the senses. And it was in that moment where you took this idea that I felt like I needed to be a part of a team. And even just watching as a little kid, you know, the military parades, and then you combine it with this jet. And I was like, that's it. I'm sold. I'm going to become, you know, a fighter pilot someday. And it was all those feelings that just spoke right to part of my heart that kind of made me go, yeah, this is something you can do. All right. So being a fighter pilot is being a fighter pilot. And then you take it to the next level as, as a Thunderbird pilot. And the distinction that I, that always irritates me is that you were the first female fighter pilot to be selected. Well, yeah, that's true. That's history making, but you were every bit as qualified as every other male or any other pilot who ever flew with the Thunderbird. So let's just talk about how, your passion to be a fighter pilot took you to flying at that extraordinary level when you were invited to become part of the Thunderbirds, where at some point, explain to us how you learned about trust and how close your wingtips are together in the diamond formation as you get to the end of your show season. Talk to us a little bit about the difference between just being a fighter pilot, which is way cool, and then taking it to the next level, which your whole life has been about to become a Thunderbird pilot. Well, sure. You know, I always remain very grateful to the Air Force for all the opportunities that it had provided me. And I had served in three mm -hmm. operational F-15E fighter squadrons, which meant, you know, I was a line pilot, a flight lead, an instructor pilot in the F-15E. And I found myself at this place in my career um, where I had honestly achieved every certification or qualification you could have as a line pilot uh, and an instructor pilot in the F-15E. And I was honestly looking around for the next challenge. And I guess that hits a lot on, on what you're asking here is I've never been someone who was satisfied with the status quo. Um, just yes. because you achieve a certain level or maybe some form of recognition, whatever that looks like in, you know, in someone's career field, that doesn't mean you stop, right? Because what put, you know, food on your plate yesterday isn't going to put food on your plate today. And at, at the end of the day, I was always looking to challenge um, myself. I've never been concerned ever with what other people thought I should be doing or if other people thought I had achieved enough or maybe that, you know, next step was too big or gnarly for her. It's not been something um, that's ever occurred in my mind. Even as a younger kid, I was always focused on, okay, now that you've done one thing, you know, how can you challenge yourself? What's the next thing you could try? I like gnarly things, and it's okay to fail, too, you know, at these gnarly things or in pursuit of these goals, which, of course, has happened to me along the way as well. Um, but I found myself mid-career having had this really wonderful uh, experience as a fighter pilot, having led peers in combat, and I was looking around going, you know, what could be this next challenge? What could be this next challenge um, as far as being a pilot and, and taking my flying skills and my teamwork skills and my leadership skills to the next level? And that's where this idea of applying to the Thunderbirds, you know, came into my head. And 
I, um, in all honesty, had never really considered the fact that they hadn't had a woman before because to your point earlier, that's irrelevant. It was that there was this challenge out there to do something different in the Air Force, to do something elite, um, to represent everybody else in the Air Force with, you know, the honor and the dignity that, that I knew they deserved because I had served with them for so many years. And so I thought, you know, why not me? I mean, what's it going to hurt to put my hat in the ring? I mean, the best way to not be selected to be a Thunderbird pilot is to not apply. And I realized <laughs> that the worst thing that could happen if I wasn't selected was that I would get to stay flying the F-15E Strike Eagle with the most amazing airmen, right, of my career that I'd already been serving with. There was no, no, har- no hardship or negative that was going to come out of this. It was only by challenging myself to have the courage to apply, to try something new, you know, that I was able to um, become a Thunderbird pilot. Okay, so, so let's relate that to, let's relate that to, to so many individuals who lose their job because of downsizing or going through the COVID-19 so-called crisis. Uh, crisis does not make or break the man or woman. It just reveals the true character within. So many people, maybe have that mindset or that mind block. Oh, you know, I don't want to go through new training. I, I want to, I want my, my life back. We need to return back to how it was the, the, the old normal instead of the new normal. Mm. So an F-15 with the stick, a little bit more wobbly using my, my civilian terminology. And then you happen to retrain an F-16 with fly by wire where your right hand grip only moves an eighth of an inch and you can't even tell you're moving it. Talk to us about the training, the mental and emotional and physical training that relates to anybody out there who says I've lost my job and they're reluctant to go about getting new training so they can be reemployed. And, Mm -hmm. and that's a limiting belief that we need to deal with. You're an expert in that. Teach us about what the process was for you to go from a stick that moves to fly by wire with a stick that's so stable. It scares the heck out of me when I had that chance. (laughs) So I agree with um, all the foundational like premise that you were just moving on. I mean, challenges and hardships are going to come along um, in all of our lives. And the thing is, with each challenge, I have always believed that there's always going to be a flip side of that coin. And the flip side of that coin is 100% opportunity, an opportunity to reinvent yourself, right, an opportunity to innovate a new way of doing things um, for your company or for those processes. You know, you talk about COVID-19 right now. Look, there is no go- going back. This is a complete crucible experience that is fundamentally changing who we are as individuals, who we are as teammates, and who we are and and what our organizations and companies look like. So anybody who is thinking we're going to go back is missing the point that we have been forged, I think, into something bigger, better, and stronger, which means we got to be forward-looking in reinventing ourselves. So to your point, the F-15E Strike Eagle is flown by hydraulics. The stick is between the knees, and it does have a lot of range of movement. The very first time I flew in an F-16, it's a side stick with very little, almost imperceptible movement because, as you noted, it's fly-by-wire. And I remember the first time I sat in that F-16, I was in the final five, what we call finalists, to be selected for the Thunderbirds. There were two positions open for five of us pilots. 
The other pilots had all been F-16 pilots their entire career. So how, here I am standing there as an F-15E fighter pilot with no experience in an F-16. And they said, get into this jet. It was a two-seater. I had a Thunderbird instructor pilot in the front seat. And you're going to go out there, right, and fly this F-16 on the wing of Thunderbird 1 and show us, you know, what you got. And I remember thinking in my head, how in the world am I going to do this? Everybody else is an F-16 pilot. I'm not. When we get in that jet, we take off. The instructor pilot, Scotty Zamzo, a phenomenal person, he puts the gear up, and I remember him saying, you have the jet. I had no choice in that moment but to grab that F-16 fly-by-wire side stick and to start flying that plane. And sure, I was wobbly and jerky at first, and, and sure, it felt awkward. It wasn't the same muscle memory that I was used to, but remember, the foundationals of flight are exactly the same, regardless of what aircraft you were in. So I had to fall back on my foundational discipline knowledge of how airplanes fly, right? The throttle goes up, you go faster. You pull the throttle back, it goes slower. You pull the stick up, you climb, you push the stick forward, you descend. So while the aircraft themselves were fundamentally different, Dan, right, those foundational characteristics, the things I had discipline on over the years served me well in that moment. And I think that that's what people's minds need to be at right now is they're transitioning to an unknown kind of future as they have the discomfort of reinventing themselves. They have a lot of great strengths and skills that got them to where they are today. The question is, how do I reimagine those skills in this new world, just like I reimagined those skills in that new jet? Wow. And to throw in a little personal experience, I remember when I get through, you know, when I had my ride with the, uh, with the Thunderbirds and we did all the air show maneuvers and we landed, and I said to my pilot, how did we fly this magnificent F-16? And he said, by feel. I said, what do you mean? He said, you become the plane. I said, what do you mean? He said, when you climbed up the ladder and slid into the cockpit, did you strap into the F-16 or did you strap the F-16 onto you? I never forgot that life lesson. And that's exactly what you just taught us. That is, that is such a great point. And I love the way, you know, that he described that to you. We are the masters of our own lives, right? We are the masters of our mindset and we are the masters of that aircraft. When I was um, 12 years old, I took my very first fully uh, instructional formal flight. It was in a Piper um, aircraft. And I remember as we started to take off, the pilot said to me, okay, you have the aircraft for the takeoff, put the throttle full forward and I'll help you when it's time to rotate the aircraft for takeoff. And I remember taking the runway and I put my hand on the throttle and I started slowly pushing the throttle forward. And in that moment, this grown man grabbed my hand firmly and slammed my hand forward so the throttle went full throttle, really fast and rapidly. I remember I jumped in my seat. I was scared. I had adrenaline. I thought, am I in trouble? What happened? We finally got airborne. When we got on the ground, he said, do you remember when I, I put my hand on that throttle on your hand and I slammed it forward? And I was thinking as a 12-year-old kid, I was about to get tears in my eyes. I, I thought I was in trouble. He says, don't ever let the jet fly you. You fly the jet. I love it. And I've never forgotten that. I didn't forget that in those moments when I was learning to fly things, a T-37, a T-38, an F-15E, an F-16. But it's a great, like, metaphor for life. We can sit here passively and let this crisis happen to us. And we can sit here and 
reminisce about the past or ruminate on the past, but that is not going to propel us forward. You have to fly this crisis, the pandemic, coronavirus, whatever you want to call it, or else it's going to fly you. And which side of that love be on? Okay, so that brings us to the second P, preparation. So who inspired you to prepare and what did you specifically do? And what I need you to do, my friend, because you were in the White House twice <laughs> and your responsibilities were so extraordinary, in my mind, you, you walked in, you slid into the, into the White House and you flew the White House. But you're teaching the world is that you're the same off stage as you are on stage. You're the same in the, in the jet as you are out of the jet. And so talk to us, generally speaking, about what prepared you to do all the other things in your life other than flying a fighter jet and the similarities of what you learned flying a fighter jet, flying with the Thunderbirds at the highest level, and how that applied to your, your special assignments in the White House, which you can describe a little bit. Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah. I, I've had a very, I had a very unique Air Force career. And to your point, um, I worked in the White House the first time, 2008-2009, at the office of the president-elect. <clears throat> ran the office for the transition between um, President Bush and President Obama, which was, you know, an historic moment and an extraordinary learning opportunity. Fast forward to around 2015, and I found myself working essentially as the military advisor uh, to then First Lady, Mrs. Michelle Obama. And you think to yourself, you know, how does a fighter pilot who flew in combat, someone who was a Thunderbird, you know, end up working at the White House? And, and you know, what are those parallels? Um, but there's a lot, right? And, and you talk about preparation. You know, preparation to me is all about having discipline. Um, discipline in how you utilize your time, discipline in how you utilize your resources, which include, you know, your own personal individual energy, but also the outside resources that are available to you. Um, discipline is all about making sure that you have um, focused on what's important, um, that you have taken the time to prioritize things. The same thing happens in the cockpit is the same thing that happens when the President of the United States walks into a room. you got to be disciplined in what you're trying to do, focused in the priorities of what's going on in that moment. And I think whether we're flying aircraft or you're running a national-level initiative you know, from the east wing of the White House, at the end of the day, it all comes down, um, in my mind, to visualization. I think people who... Um, appear to be the most prepared are the ones who set aside time to do what we in the Air Force, as you know, Dan, call chair flying, right? Chair flying mm -hmm. is really, you know, professional elite athletes do this as well. You know, we sit down, you close your eyes, and you literally go through the motion step by step in real time of what's going to happen on that combat mission, of each individual radio call or stick movement in a Thunderbird air show of each step of a process when you're trying to plan an event that the president and the first lady are going to be at. You take the time to visualize it and to chair fly it until it has become muscle memory. You can execute it before the moment has ever arrived. Does that make sense? Absolutely. <clears throat> you have to do that in football. You know, you put yourself in the position and you study the game film. And when that, when that team gets in that particular formation and they run this specific play come around game time, you see them in that formation and you adjust so that you have the competitive advantage. Well, I know they're going to come here based mm -hmm. on my research and my scouting report. 
So let's just talk that you, you brought up something so profound. How do you prepare yourself so you can respond to rapid change? Because so many people who are not succeeding and thriving through the, the Corona uh, situation are those who are not prepared before it occurred. And what you're talking about is we need to prepare ourselves. When we're prepared, we shall not fear. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're teaching us? Yeah, no, I thank you for pointing that out. And, you know, one of these things we, we talk about in preparation is to plan right for contingencies and to plan for changes. So you just talked about it in terms of, you know, a football game. You look out there, you see the team, you know what the probability of the next play is going to be, but you also know that it's never 100%. You know, in war, we always talk about flying in combat. You can plan all you want, but the enemy always has a vote. So things are going to change. So when you're doing this preparation, when you're visualizing, when you're chair flying, you have to also think through all of the contingencies. Just because a football play is 90% certain, or just because an intelligence report in in, um, combat is 95% certain, doesn't mean that the inevitable and the unexpected can still come along. So trying to plan for those contingencies is important. I remember when I would teach um, young lieutenants how to fly the F-15E Strike Eagle. Before we would go fly, we would talk about different emergencies, and it was always random. So the students would sit there going, I wonder what the instructor is going to ask me contingency-wise today. And one of my favorite things to ask a student was, you know, when do you make the decision to eject? When do you make the decision to eject from the aircraft? And oftentimes they go down this, this list, right? I'll eject if I'm not at the right altitude. I'll eject if my airspeed's not right. You know, I'll eject if I have a catastrophic engine failure. But I would remind them that that's actually not the answer. You make the decision to eject before you ever take off. So that when that contingency happens, when the football team makes the different play, when the enemy on the ground in combat does something you didn't expect, you're able in a really agile fashion to shift with that. And so practicing and thinking through those contingencies is important. And, you know, Dan, I told you, I started formally flying when I was 12 years old. You know, I'm 45 years old now. I had a full Air Force career, thousands of hours. And I will tell you, I never, not once, not in peacetime, not in combat, not as a Thunderbird pilot, it doesn't matter. Not once did I ever fly a mission or a sortie that went exactly the way I planned it. So just accepting from the get-go, having the right framework and the mindset that states change is inevitable, right? The only thing that connects all of us, regardless of our backgrounds and our industry, is that the ground beneath all of us is constantly shifting. And so controlling how you react in that moment is vital. It's vital. If you take it with discipline, with focus, then you can project calm to yourself and you can project calm to the teammates and the people around you who are depending on you for that leadership in a crisis situation like we're seeing today. Absolutely. Which brings us to the third P, pursuit of your passion. So I just breezed over uh, the medical release that you were, 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 were experiencing because of a tick-borne illness. And so to everything you've already taught us, Nicole, You've been prepared and you're practicing what you preach and preaching only what you practice when it comes to what we said way in the beginning of the interview, crisis does not make or break the man or woman. It just reveals the true character within. 
as we da- wind down the last few minutes together, talk to us about what happened to you with your medical illness, your, your challenge, and why all of us, not just me, but all of us who know you, continuously admire you because you're, are, you're responding to this challenge and change in your life, just like you did in every other aspect of your life. It, it will be the answer to preparation and how you've been consistent in your attitude and your performance in everything you do. Well, thank, thank you for that. And thanks for the opportunity to talk about tick-borne illness. Um, you know, I was a hard-charging officer, a full-bird colonel, a fighter pilot, right? I was physically fit, mentally fit, emotionally fit. And then all of a sudden, my body started failing me. Um, you know, I, without going into details that would take forever, um, I started feeling really ill when I was, like I had the flu all the time when I was the commander of a fighter squadron back in 2012, over the next four years, um, doctors would struggle to figure out what was wrong with me. And in many cases, it was suggested to me that it was either all in my head or that maybe um, because I'd been a successful woman in a male-dominated career field that somehow um, the stress was getting to me, maybe it was time to retire, et cetera. But inside, right, I knew it wasn't true. You talk about You know, this character, character comes down to one thing, in my opinion, only, and that's integrity to yourself. We talk about this term integrity as far as like telling the truth or being honest, which is all cool, and that is correct. But if you Google the word integrity and you look at like definition number four or five that comes up uh, on the website, you'll see it's about maintaining fidelity to the whole. And when you maintain fidelity to the whole, who you are, what you value, why you prioritize things the way you do, I honestly believe you can endure any crisis. And it was by maintaining integrity to myself that I found my way through this four-year medical odyssey, which by the summer of 2016 had left me completely disabled, 100% dependent on other people for my activities of daily living. I went from a fighter pilot flying high to someone who was bedridden 22 plus hours a day, unable to speak, read, and write, and unable to walk safely. I mean, this actually happened. Like, you, you know, you can't make this up. And the day of my medical retirement came, Dan, and I was mm-hmm. actually at home. I had no, after 21 years of honorable service, no ceremony, nothing, I got my retirement certificate in a manila envelope. And I remember having this moment this pity party, and I'm thinking, well, I can't read and write. I can't work for time, full time. Who's going to hire me? What is my contribution to society if I'm not a fighter pilot, if I'm not an officer? Who am I outside of this uniform? How do I provide for my family? And all of this kind of self-doubt was raging around, and I sat there by myself one day in my living room, and these words came to my head, yield to overcome, yield to overcome. Just like we yield nose position in certain times, like you know, during a dog fight, right, in order to yep. get the upper hand on the enemy, that's what I actually needed to do. By accepting what was happening to me, I could actually reinvent myself and move forward. And I laid there, once I started treatment, once I was finally accurately diagnosed, and I started, which was two years worth of treatment and rehab to get where I am today, I realized yield to overcome. Nicole, you're not ask, you're a fighter pilot, dang it. You're not asking yourself the right questions. It's not what are all these things I can't do anymore because of my illness. The question is what can I do because of my illness? 
And I had over therapy, right? I regained my ability to speak. And I thought, what kind of job am I going to do? I'm not in the military anymore. You know, and my, my joke, Dan, I know you got a good sense of humor. I tell people, you know, I became a professional speaker because I got nine months worth of words saved up and I got to get them out. (laughs) 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 The truth was, is I laid in bed, unable to communicate with people with nothing but my own head. I had to ask myself, who are you? It was never that I was supposed to be a general in the Air Force. It was never that I was, my legacy was just to be a fighter pilot or, or just to be an officer. At the end of the day, my path was to be right where I'm at, which is as a patient advocate on the national level for other people with this illness, which is as a public speaker, reminding people that they can overcome adversity and challenges with the right mindset, standing up there as an example of what, you know, that looks like. Yield to overcome was about accepting and moving forward. So as we wind down <clears throat> with every one of my A-listers, which you are at the top of so far, you're so amazing. You're kind I ask you one last question, my friend. You know, there's the Professor Randy Tausch, he, he was the one that coined the speech title, Last Lecture. So if you had one day to live, Nicole, if, if you could consolidate your message now as a professional speaker and an upcoming international best-selling author, as we both know, what is your one message to the world that you would uh, that you would leave us with? Only you get to define success for yourself. Don't let anybody else, any other paradigm, any organization define what success looks like for you. Maintain integrity to who you are. There you have it, folks. This is my guest, Nicole Malakowski. And as we always say at the conclusion of my podcast, remember, my friends, when you finally decide to be a power player, your power player begins, your power play begins in you, just like Nicole has been teaching us for the last 30 minutes. So until next time, quantify your takeaway and go make a power play. Thank you so much, Nicole. And I appreciate you so much. Everyone in the world needs to watch for her new book release. And if you're ever in need of an amazing public speaker, you know, professional speaker at every level, please think of Nicole Malakowski. Thank you, Nicole, for joining me. Thank you, Dan. Thanks for the chance to chat with you again, my friend. I appreciate it. We'll talk again offline, and God bless you. You're amazing. Thank you, sir. You are, too. Take care. Thanks. Have a great day. Bye. The views and opinions expressed on the Power Players podcast do not necessarily reflect those of KUTV or Sinclair Broadcast Group.